moderate rock. Hi there, and welcome to episode 16 of Turning Tracks. My name is Matt. And I'm Chris. And we're here to talk about the music that we love. With the 30th anniversary of one of my all-time favorite records just behind us, it only seemed fitting to talk about a band that, for many, has become the voice of a generation. Whether they wanted it or not, this band ushered in a new sound and changed the landscape of rock forever. Load up your guns, bring your friends, it's time to lose and listen to the new music of Nirvana. Hey there, Chris. Hey there, Matt. <laughs> How are you? Oh, I don't know. Don't know. Don't know. Don't know. I don't know. How are you? Oh, no. <laughs> Did um, I do that right? I don't know Nirvana. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty much. You, you, you nailed it. <laughs> Is that what he's saying in that song? Uh, if I'm not mistaken, yes. I, it's right. been a long time since I've looked at the lyrics. I'm very bad about lyrics, too, sometimes. If I really like the song, I will sit down and read the lyrics. I have to say I like Spotify um, actually has lyrics. If you click into the song while it's playing, you can, most music has lyrics. Well, that's uh, nice. Yeah, so it's been super helpful. But um, Nirvana. Huh? Nirvana. Yes, indeed. <laughs> that is a band that exists that uh, people have been telling me most of my life, uh, I'm crazy for not being the biggest fan of. But you know what? We're going to see if we can change that today. And on that note, for anyone who's new to the show, here's how this works. Each episode, either myself or Chris picks a band or an artist. That person then has to choose 10 tracks and 10 tracks only that they believe best represents that band or said artist. Uh, we listen to them. We discuss them. And that's how this goes. Right? Uh, Nirvana. Very, uh, very polarizing. Um, Very prolific with? band. Prolific? Am I using that word in, right? <laughs> um, well, it depends. What are you trying to say? I'm trying to say that they're prolific. I can't even get... You're welcome. <laughs> well, okay. So I, all right. I don't. I can't recover from this. That's our show. Thank you very much, Chris. What are we doing next time? Um, yeah, I wanted to go look up the word prolific, and there's a company named Prolific. What is it? Let's see. Of plant, animal, or person, I believe that's that that qualifies as the group producing <laughs> much fruit or foliage of many or many offspring. No, no, that's not them. Uh, present in large numbers or quantity, plentiful. No, I don't think I use that word right at all. <coughs> right, and the the reason I don't think that is is because apparently they really only had a three-year mainstream career. Yeah, and not much of it involved fruit. Well, there is a lyric in uh, in, in Bloom about, you know, bruises on the fruit, but uh, that's about it. Um, <laughs> all right, so let me give you a little history, and then we can chat about the polarity that is Nirvana, the polarizing force that is Nirvana, right? Hmm. Reverse the polarity of the neutron flow. Don't cross the streams. 
Uh, Nirvana was formed in Aberdeen, Washington in 1987. Founded by lead singer and guitarist Kurt Cobain and bassist. Uh, now, here's, I, I want to talk pol- polarizing. Chris Novoselic. Chris Novoselic. Hmm? I don't know. We're calling him Chris. The band went through a succession of drummers, most notably Chad Channing, uh, before eventually recruiting the now famous Dave Grohl in 1990. Nirvana's success polarized alternative rock, and they were often referenced as the figurehead band of Generation X. Despite a short mainstream career, as I said, spanning only three years, their music maintains a popular following and continues to influence modern rock culture. Characterized by their punk aesthetic, uh, Nirvana's fusions of pop melodies with noise, combined with their themes of abjection uh, and social alienation, brought them global popularity. Nirvana is one of the best-selling bands of all time, having sold more than 75 million records worldwide. During their three years as a mainstream act, Nirvana receives an American Music Award, a Brit Award, and a Grammy Award, as well as seven MT- sev- yes, seven, excuse me, MTV Video Music Awards and two NME Awards. They've achieved five number one hits on the Billboard Alternative Songs chart and four number one hits on the Billboard 200. In 2004, Rolling Stone named Nirvana among the 100 greatest artists of all time, and they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in their first year of eligibility in 2014. I want to make the joke that you can't argue with results, right? Some of those accolades right there, on paper, will tell you that, yes, these guys are, in fact, one of the greatest rock bands of all time. 75 million records, nothing to shake a stick at, right? But when you get to kind of talking about Nirvana, Nirvana, excuse me, and kind of who they were and the music that they were making and some of the circumstances of which they were under, it becomes very uh, opposite of what, you know, the public sees Nirvana to be. Let's do let's do our, our usual personal history here. So, Chris, obviously, I'm bringing you Nirvana. So you tell me what you know of Nirvana. Tell me everything you know of Nirvana. Well, uh, my sister was a huge fan, so I've heard a lot of their music uh, just just playing throughout my house when I was a kid. And most of my friends were big fans uh, because obviously Nirvana was inescapable uh, in the MTV generation, which I was very much a part of um, mm-hmm. uh, the bands surrounding Nirvana. I was mostly pretty fond of like I I, I love Pearl Jam, especially early Pearl Jam, yes. um, just just 90s alt rock in particular. But there is something about the Nirvana songs that never quite clicked with me because I'm. I'm more of a major chord kind of a guy, you know, like I, 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 I like, I like catchy stuff and Nirvana's music has always struck me as very, um, dour and repetitive in ways that just kind of annoyed me. So <laughs> with the exception of, uh, you know, weird Al's take on smells like Nirvana, uh, I've just never really been all that big of a fan of their music, nor did I ever really see the, a lot of music I don't like all that much. I could still see like, oh, I get why this is good. I just, this isn't for me. Like, I can understand why this is so good. And the Nirvana stuff, again, just, I, I couldn't figure it out. And I had tried uh, because so many of my friends were into the music. And, you know, I remember where I was when it was announced that he he had died. And um, there was the on MTV Unplugged right before it happened that people were just raving about being this absolutely incredible thing and i remember watching it and being like i just i don't see it like i i understand i i guess that this is this is music it's it's fine 
but I'm not, I'm not seeing what everybody else is seeing. I just couldn't see what everybody else was seeing. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, so many of the people I knew in school were just totally wrecked by uh, his death. And again, I was just like, I, I you know, condolences, but I don't, this, this, as much as I have tried, I've never been able to get this music to connect with me um, or even really like just, just in a base level, understand it. I have a similar situation with the Beatles. I've never mm. really, I, for the longest time, I had never really gotten the Beatles. And mm-hmm. then I was on a trip, uh, a work trip once, and they took us all to see the, uh, the Cirque du Soleil Beatles thing. Whoa. And uh, I, that was the first time their music ever really clicked with me. I was like, oh, I think I get it now. And like, I still, I'm not like a huge Beatles fan, but I <laughs> get it. Like, I really get it. There was just something about hearing the music in that particular instance that was like, okay, it clicked with me. I get what's so good about this. I get, I get mm-hmm. more about why people love this. Um, and that has yet to happen with me and Nirvana. And I don't know that it will, but you have, you have my full attention. I will give this a, uh, every every opportunity to click with me i did i was very interested in your track list because i don't know any of these songs i don't think i mean i've probably heard them just in the background once maybe twice in my life just out of coming out of my sister's room but like i wouldn't be able to pick them out of the lineup i'm very unfamiliar with this stuff so uh yeah i'm i'm very interested to see where this goes uh yeah count me in so uh, without getting off track, you, you mentioned the Beatles, and I felt that way for such a long time as well. Um, it was only doing live sound uh, that we had a Beatles tribute band, and um, I thought to myself, like, ah, oh, uh, I got to endure two hours of the Beatles, right? First set, they did all the uh, early Beatles stuff, the mop top stuff, right? And as yeah. they're playing through them, I'm like, oh, I like, I, I like this song. I know this song. I like this song. I like this song. By the, by the midway, by almost the end of the first set i was like wait a second am i a beatles fan <laughs> the second the second set comes along and they start doing all the psychedelic stuff you know sergeant peppers and and revolver and and by the end of the show i was like oh my god i'm a beatles fan how did i because i felt the exact same way i'm like you know f the beatles like who the hell are they who do they think they are bigger than jesus blah blah, blah. and then i realized you know i went down the only rabbit hole with the Beatles for about two or three years. I became like a psychotic Beatles fan. And I was like reading things and, you know, uh, I know things. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh man, these records and 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 just their um their uh what's the word? Uh, uh their not gifts, but their their contributions. Their contributions to like Western music and recording and recording technology. They they uh, figured out. Oh, I'm I'm getting off topic. Sorry. Anyway, mm-hmm. once I got out of that rabbit hole, I came out the other side and was like, "Holy cow!" Like I have such a very big appreciation and love for the Beatles. So I'm I'm very interested if wink wink we do an episode on the Beatles. That being said, when I think that parallels a bit to Nirvana in some respects, the Beatles were the British invasion. And they swept the globe, right? They swept, they took America absolutely by storm. They changed the airwaves, right? They captivated the audience, the young teens and stuff. They just captivated the hell out of them. And that was it. Like, I hate to say it, but I mean, like someone like Taylor Swift and Beyonce, that's what they're doing currently, right? It's not our cup of tea, but it's happening, right? 
And I think Nirvana is is similar in the respect that they only had a short career. I think the Beatles were only together on paper for nine years. And while Nirvana, the band proper using the name Nirvana has only been doing it, they've been doing it, I want to say, they played their first show as Nirvana in like, I want to say 88 or probably 1988. And then Kurt's uh, untimely passing in 94. Right. So you're looking at what, six years. And and then what happens after a band has such a short run, all these things start coming out. Uh, Oh, here's here's some demos. Here's some lives. Here's some roughs. Here's some you know, practice rehearsals before the, the nevermind recording. You know what I mean? So I can, so to your point, when you jokingly, half jokingly use the word prolific, I was teetering yes and no because of that, right? You could sit and argue that the Beatles were prolific because they have so much material. And then you get those insane collectors who have, oh, my favorite take of Let It Be is the seventh take, which didn't make it on the album because the one on the album is the 10th take. And you're like, how do you know this stuff? You know, there's live in Rome. There's live from the the muddy banks of the Wishka. Like there's so many Nirvana lives. The 30th anniversary of In Utero, which is my one of my all time favorite records. You know, I just bought the vinyl of it because I wanted it on vinyl, but I also bought the CD of it so I could have more accessibility. There's a whole other disc that has two live shows on it. I'm not the biggest live guy, but I mean, like it's that sort of stuff. People are insane Nirvana fans, which brings me to the other point that you touched on, they're a very polarizing band. Some people hook, line, and sinker, and other people just, quote-unquote, don't get it. And I'm not, understand that I'm not here to change your perception, change your mind, change the way you think about them. I, in putting this episode together and putting this, the track list together, because to your point, none of these songs are really singles. I want to say maybe two of them hit the radio they're nothing like you know smells like teen spirit or in bloom you know uh, uh now of course i can't think of the single off in utero whatever anyway um i wanted to show the side of nirvana that i think that the band wanted first and foremost nirvana really is a punk band right <clears throat> everyone thinks oh grunge you know seattle the seattle grunge scene and of course, like you said, all the bands that were around Nirvana at the time, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, guys like Mud Honey and and uh, Sonic Youth, even though Sonic Youth is from New York, um, you know, they they all kind of came together because they kind of had the similar sound. One band, you know, one band always does the one thing that's different. And then every record label scrambles to get their own version of Nirvana, Korn. The Beatles, whatever it is, they they can't they don't want to be left out in the cold, right? Um, first and foremost, my opinion, everything I've read, the the interviews I've seen. There's a great interview with um the surviving members, uh, um, uh, excuse me, Chris and Dave, and Steve Albini, with Conan O'Brien for his podcast because they talk about the 30th anniversary of In Utero. So there's this really great conversation about how in utero, the approach to in utero versus the approach to nevermind. And we'll talk about that as we get through the record, the um, recordings. All that stuff just leads me to say, like, Nirvana was like a noise punk band. And you can't tell that necessarily from nevermind. And we'll, again, we'll see that. But 
I just want to show that side of Nirvana that I think a lot of people never really saw that was really them, which kind of makes sense because when you hear like someone like Dave Grohl uh, talk about Kurt when he was alive, the type of person he was, he was a very shy person. He was very introverted and he was very quiet, um, but he was such an interesting person. So you really had to get past that to get the real person. I don't know if it's intentional. I don't know if it's just uh, art imitating life, but I feel in a very pompous way, as I say it, I feel like that's very much what Nirvana uh, was. You had to get past some of this, like, I don't know, exterior that was presented and presentable, you know, to the mass market. You had to get past that to get to what I think is really kind of the, the core sound and the core approach and the core message of the band Nirvana. So, yeah, um, I don't know if you're ready, but I'm, I'm always ready to dive in. Yeah, let's do it. All right, so the first song we're going to uh, take on is a track called Blue, as in past tense of blow. Um, this song is the first track on their first major release, Bleach, which comes off the um, sub-pop uh, label. This was record, uh, The album was released in um, 1989. So this is this is the album before Nevermind. And one of the reasons I, I always say it every episode, one of the reasons why I do things in chronological order is because I like to present kind of the big story arc. And you could see the evolution from the beginning to wherever they are now. In our case, the end. Um, in Nirvana's case, the end. So we're going to start with the very first track you would have encountered uh, by a band called Nirvana off an album called Bleach. And the song is called Blue. Enjoy.
was Blue by Nirvana off their debut album from 1990, 1989, excuse me, Bleach. Uh, some interesting factoids about that, but first I would like to hear how you felt about that, Chris. That song, Blue. Oh, I'm sorry. I couldn't resist. Wow. I was physically trying to restrain myself from telling that bad joke, but I couldn't let it go by. This is what happens when you do a show with a dad. <laughs> that was a good time. It was a, uh, it just, it reminded me of the Clark's soundtrack. Uh, <laughs> and I mean that in a very good way. I like the, oh, the low, absolutely. the lo-fi recording. Uh, it's very, I don't know. I liked it. I didn't, you know, it did. I, I can't point to anything specific that I liked about it, but, uh, I liked it. It was uh, it was good. It was it was good music. I didn't I did not hate that. I didn't find it annoying in the least. I just found that to be like it was very good grungy background music. Uh, I like all of the sounds. I like the uh, I like the, uh, the 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 drum fill conclusion to the song. I've all I'm always a big fan of that. Uh, yeah, I liked it. That's good stuff. Yeah. So I was just reading a little bit. I mean, I you know I've I've heard the songs a bazillion times, but I was reading a little bit. And I found this uh, interesting tidbit about some of the recording for this particular record. <laughs> it says, Were they on a label at this point, or is this like yes. more or less independent? Okay, this is sub. They're on Sub Pop. I, I mean, I didn't. I, you know, as always with this show, I don't. I'm not here to really give a deep history. Um, I, you know, it's more about just listening to music and stuff. So I, I could have dug in deep for like their seven drummers that eventually led them to you know dave grohl at the moment they're drumming with uh, a gentleman called uh chad uh chad channing um who moved on to other bands uh chad channing what a name <laughs> yeah right <laughs> the, you're like is that even a real name like are you are, are you just are really into alliteration well done maybe his dad was uh stan lee god what's his middle name stanislaw i don't know <laughs> chad charles channing are you serious no i'm just saying oh. Damn, I, hope that been... I hope it's Chaz. Chad Chaz Channing. That's the name oh. that I want. <laughs> well, sounds like you need to have another child. Anyway. <laughs> the... <laughs> oh, no. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, so apparently the Bleach version of Blue was accidentally recorded one step lower than the band had actually intended. Apparently they were recording in D. They dropped tune to D and then they went away for like the weekend or whatever came back and then I guess they all forgot that they dropped a D. So they dropped a whole step down to C and recorded a bunch of the songs. And then they realized like, Oh no, this wait a second. This doesn't sound good at all. But apparently according to uh, Chris Novoselic quote, we came back the next day and decided the idea wasn't so hot. And we recorded over most of it with things tuned back up a little. In fact, blue with that growly bass is the only survivor of that experiment. So huh. that bass is actually in C, which would explain why it's so low and grumbly, which is actually one of my favorite parts of the song. Honestly, yeah, I love how neat. it opens. I love that, that, that that's how the record opens too. Like that's you know, welcome to Nirvana. And that's what you get out of that. Chad's parents were Wayne and Bernice. <laughs> I can't find his middle name though. Maybe he doesn't have one. I know people without a middle name. Very weird mm -hmm. to me. Anyway, we're going to stay with Bleach for another two tracks. The second track uh, off of Bleach is a song called School. I feel that the song School is a little more punk. 
in okay wait let me put a pin in that for a second when i use the term punk i don't mean like the genre of music that's become named punk right i don't mean you know like no effects and uh rancid and the germs and i'm i'm it's the attitude of punk very much like spit in the face of authority counterculture and so if you think about it in 1988 when the record was recorded in 89 when it was released the airwaves were controlled by hair metal your poisons your white snakes deaf leopards right ozzy was uh you know ozzy's doing his thing he's solo but still it's still kind of this power metal hair metal you know motley crew style poison and stuff right so this is very much counterculture to what is on the airwaves what is what is on mtv you know so i think this song school is pretty much the embodiment of punk i think a lot of like i said before what is on this list this musical list is the embodiment of punk very counterculture at any rate this is the fourth track off of the bleach record by nirvana called school enjoy
That was School by Nirvana off their debut album, Bleach. And Chris, how did that go for you? Well, I tell you, Matt, you sure are taking me to school today. Ha, ha, ha. I don't know. I might be able to do it for every song. Uh, no, I really liked that song. That song. I liked that quite a bit. Um, I was actually working on something else in the background and like a few, I don't know, maybe like 15 seconds into the song, I just kind of like stopped and said, no, no. All right. This is good. I like this a lot. I must say that uh, I'm two songs that we've heard so far uh, are far and away the most I've ever enjoyed this band. And I really like this. <laughs> I'm enjoying this album so far. I like its sound. And the, yeah. uh, it's again, it's reminding me a lot of the Clark soundtrack. And I do not mean that as a bad thing. I, I love that soundtrack. Um, I like the, uh, the, the, the time signature changes. It's, it's a complex little, little tune, but it's a, uh, I have no idea what it's about. I, I didn't pay a lick of attention to the lyrics, but I like his uh, the the energy in the lyrics uh, and the mm-hmm. vocals in general. Uh, this is a good tune. I liked it. Well, I'm, I'm glad you said all that because I was going to ask you, what is it about this song that, I guess, grabbed you? Um, yeah, it's it's just the overall sound. It's like, I don't know. It, it, it was weird. I'm, I'm listening to this, and I'm like, I could totally see myself background listening to this. This is... This is good stuff. This does not remind me of what I think of when I think Nirvana. This is, this is just, I don't know. It's it's very raw. It's very um, not like everything you said about it is punk. Like right, it's it's yeah. giving me that punk vibe. As in, it's like it seems very DIY. Which is why I asked if they were on a, on on a, a label at this point because it it sounds so honest. Um, whereas. I, I, maybe it's just because of the way it was packaged. Everything that I had heard of the slightly more modern Nirvana, like the real, real popular stuff, felt so manufactured and, and to a degree disingenuine to me. Like, mm. I didn't really get it, and it seemed like such a packaged product. Oh, um, Christopher, 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 I love you, you beautiful, ignorant, magnificent bastard. <laughs> You, that, I you guess are... it's just kind of what it came off to, to as to me, and this is very much not that. Um, so I okay, I, I I absolutely love what you're saying, and I don't mean to cut you off, but the reason I'm I'm kind of jumping in here is because I was going to ask you. You're saying that this is nothing like what you know of Nirvana, so my question was going to be. So then you know I and I hate to stop this train, right? Um, but I wanted to know what you knew of Nirvana and. You have I know the hits and yes, and, and and I hate to say it, but you've stepped in the bear trap that I set for you. <laughs> <laughs> I love bear traps. You did it in such a wonderful way that I couldn't have, you know, orchestrated it better. And, and I, again, I'm being a little pompous and arrogant, <laughs> and I, I, but it's strictly I, I promise you it's strictly for entertainment value. Um, I'm very glad that you said what you said. This feels more honest. The other stuff feels way more packaged. When we get to Nevermind, and when we get to In Utero, we'll talk more about that, okay? So in the interest of continuing on, we're going to listen to one more track off of Bleach. This is a song called Negative Creep. It's the seventh track off the record. (laughs) And I'm a big fan of it, and I hope you are too. And here it is, Negative Creep. Negative 
That was Nirvana's Negative Creep off of the 1989 debut release, Bleach. And Chris, how did that grab you? I have a lot of thoughts, but the one that sticks out to me right now is how did that song not end abruptly? What is this song? What is the business of this song doing fading out? This song totally should have ended. <laughs> when it started fading out, I was like, wait, what? Wait, what? <laughs> no, no, this song ends abruptly. That's what that's the energy. Ah, whatever. Um, I get it. I, I, I do that sometimes, <laughs> too. And I go, no, this is the perfect place to end. Just do that drum roll again. Yeah, just yeah, stop. Be tight. Finish it off. This is Real what tight. your producer should have been telling you at this point. Stop. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> holy Eddie Vedder, Batman. Uh, are you familiar with the Pearl Jam song, Do the Evolution? It's evolution, baby. There is no doubt in my mind that Eddie Vedder knows this song because, like, I was just like, the way he sings that song, like, this, I'm, I'm hearing him singing the way Eddie Vedder sings. And, like, particularly the, the energy of Do the Evolution seems really mm -hmm. derivative of this song. And I don't mean that as an insult. I love Do the Evolution, I think it's a phenomenal song. Um, yes. but, uh, yeah, I was, I was really taken aback by the way he was singing in this one. Like it mm -hmm. sounded so different from anything I'd ever heard Kurt Cobain do. Mm -hmm. Um, really great energy. Again, it's a bit repetitive for my taste. Uh, it's sure. something that turns me off in, in the Nirvana songs that I know, but the, the, what kept this from bothering me was that it was so energetic. Um, it wasn't droning on, it was just. <laughs> this is this is what's happening now, you know. This <laughs> I'm laughing because there's a line in the song which I'm sure you didn't catch because it's your first listen to. He says, "This is drone." <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't catch that at all. Uh, yeah, but but that's that's what that when I think of Nirvana, I think of droning, repetitive, uh, droning, repetitive, sad, angry songs. Yes, and this was just angry but fun. Like this was sure. a. This was a, had a really good energy to it. It was really well paced. Um, and again, the, the, the vocal quality was really impressive. Like, I, it's so weird because it, as he's singing, I'm like, this is exactly how Eddie Vedder sings. This is so freaking weird hearing Nirvana sing like that. In his um, throat. Yeah. Like, yeah. everything about it, everything about the. And also, it reminded me a lot of um, Michael from My Old Band Chocolat. Like, mm -hmm. holy cow. Um, I know he. I, I'm pretty sure he was a Nirvana fan. I, I I know we talked about a bunch of musical influences, but he knew I wasn't the biggest Nirvana fan, so I don't know that we talked about it that much. But mm -hmm. I just listening to the 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 screamy bits. I'm like, oh, sh Michael used to do exactly mm -hmm. that. Like during our shows, like he would do that exact thing. Um, yeah, it was a fascinating little piece of music. I really really enjoyed that. <laughs> I like to say that Kurt didn't scream; he howled. <laughs> Yeah, and when I you, think howling is the right right word for that. I didn't put anything from the unplugged because I didn't feel it was necessary. Um, you know, I implore you to go and listen to it if you haven't on your own. But um, one one thing I will talk about the unplugged um, by far and wide my favorite performance out of everything that appears on that, which is funny because it's like seventy five percent Nirvana, twenty five percent covers, is the. Uh, uh, where did you sleep last night? He has the final howl on that um, recording is just so perfect and so haunting. And, you know, although you want to romanticize it all right. But the reality of it is Kurt was very good at that. 
you watch live performances, you get it on recordings like this and, and some other stuff too on, um, on the Bleach record. You'll get some of it on In Utero. You'll see some B-sides with Incesticide, right? He was just very good at that. <laughs> Which then, you know, lends itself to this idea that like, this man is really singing from the heart. This, this stuff is really coming from deep within somewhere, right? It, it, it always, when I was younger, I didn't, I resonated with it, but I couldn't understand why. You know, you don't, you lack the emotional uh, maturity and the words to kind of go, hmm, I see his pain. I can understand isolationism. As a kid, you're just like, guy's angry. Love it. Music's heavy. Love it. <laughs> that was a lot of my, that was a lot of why I liked certain bands. It's like, oh, they're just, they're just mm -hmm. aggressively ha uh, heavy and this is great. Um, or, you know, yeah. what do you call it? They, they're just so counterculture. Your parents hate it. So therefore you have to love it, right? Like, <laughs> screw Engelbert Humperdinck. This is Nirvana. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, anyway. Uh, well, I'm glad you really enjoyed the Bleach record. I, I, I'm going to say you should probably go listen to it. It's pretty good. It's, it, I probably should. It's a lot of more stuff like that. All right. Well, <laughs> we're going to move on now to the landscape-changing, thermonuclear, you know, ever-present, omnipotent, omniscient record juggernaut that is Nevermind. 1991's Nevermind. The album that launched a thousand careers, the album that put a thousand thumb holes into a thousand flannels. Never mind. <laughs> All right. So Nirvana gets picked up by um, Geffen Records. And what ends up happening is Nirvana was touring a bit and they get they get some notoriety. They get picked up by Geffen. Geffen gives him a buttload of money and says, go record an album. Hmm. The guys had a laundry list of people they wanted to work with as far as producers were concerned. A lot of them were tied up, and they got working with Butch Vig. Butch Vig is, for most people who don't know who he is, he's most famous for uh, being the drummer of um, Garbage, Shirley Manson. But Butch Vig is a very prolific producer-engineer in his own right. His accolades are outstanding. So it made sense. Even back then, he had he had a laundry list. He had a rap sheet, or you know, of of who's who's with his records. So you know, he too was kind of becoming the voice of a generation because he was the voice behind the voice in some cases. When Nirvana recorded, they made the record and and a, and a handful of other tracks that ended up on singles and you know sat in a vault somewhere and stuff like that. But the record, Chris and um, Dave would talk about it in interviews. You know post nirvana and say that like you know it was, it was a great recording experience they had a great time they recorded at um there we go sound city it was recorded at sound city in california sound city is again another mecca for recording there's a great documentary called sound city and it's about the life and times of sound city recording studio and its eventual demise um most notably um Dave Grohl, they were they were dismantling the the studio, and Dave Grohl stepped in and was like, "Listen, I would love to buy this console." And they were like, "Uh, yeah, all right." <laughs> like Dave Grohl's already like seven records deep into Foo Fighters, you know he's he's megastar Dave Grohl, right? Nicest guy on the planet. The fact that they had to kind of think about it for a second was you know asinine to me, but 
Long story short, Dave Grohl owns the console that he recorded Nevermind on. And then eventually it became the console that he would record all his, you know, the later Foo Fighter records on. In addition to things like Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham, right, before they joined Fleetwood Mac, it's it's such a wild, wild ride. Anyway, you know, I think when you have all these things lined up perfectly, you got this great engineer and producer in Butch Vig, you're in the legendary, you know, uh, Sound City, like what could possibly go wrong, right? Well, when they talk about it later on, you know, they have things to say, like, listen, it's a great record. It launched our careers, right? Makes us ton of, tons of money, but it's not the record we wanted to make. You know, it ended up being too polished. It ended up too too clean. The mass, the mixing and the mastering wasn't what they would have done. So the reason I bring this up, Chris, is because you had mentioned, well, the packaging that you know of Nirvana probably comes from the Nevermind record, right? Here are these guys that are uh, essentially a bunch of punks going counterculture. They get a ton of money to make a record. And, you know, guys like that, punks, you know, in general, artists in general, when when too much gets involved and the sky's the limit, the art sort of disappears and it becomes like cash grab. So, you know, that's kind of how they talk about it. And sitting inside of the scope of the career of Nirvana, like I could totally see it. Now, that's not to say that they still didn't make some really great music. Um, so the first track we're going to listen to is going to be Breed. Breed is the fourth track off the album. Uh, definitely one of my favorites. I want to say it was featured in Rock Band at some point. So maybe some of you who are listening might remember this from that, if you're not already Nirvana fans. But anyway, here's Nevermind's Breed by Nirvana from 1991. Enjoy.
Breed by Nirvana off of 91's Nevermind. Chris? I, it did nothing for me. It was fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I don't know. I, I, I can't really put my fingers on it. It was just like, I don't know, maybe his, his earlier in the song, it's, I felt like his vocals were really low in the mix, and I don't know. I, I can't quite put my finger on it, but it didn't... Uh, I didn't hate it. I didn't really not enjoy it, but it was just kind of, it didn't feel very special to me. Interesting. Okay. I Listen, I have nothing to do with the recording, so you're not insulting me. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Nirvana fans are, who are listening are going, ah, but hey. I was trying to listen specifically to the song itself, you know, instead of just the way that it, instead of just the way that it sounded, just like we're trying to listen to. What is the what am I getting out of this? Just the song itself, mm-hmm. uh, remove the recording quality or anything like that from it. And again, it just I don't know. There was just it just didn't really do anything for me. OK, eh, no worries. Um, I think my takeaway from this and a lot of the stuff that's actually on this record is um, uh, something I read, you know, kind of in the beginning. Oh, the uh, wrap up in the beginning, wrap up in the beginning anyway, uh, which is the ability to combine like pop melodies well what's written here is with noise but you know pop melodies with this ultra aggressive backdrop landscape whatever you want to call it of the guitars and 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 dave's just monstrous playing oh by the way this Mm. record now features dave grohl and will all recordings moving forward will feature dave grohl unless otherwise no you can drum (laughs) oh uh there's stories about how dave showed up to um to record nevermind and uh you know he just he just blasted through everything and and uh butch was like hey man you know you're great uh just um just tone it down a little bit (laughs) (laughs) but uh you know whatever so anecdotes aside um i'll agree with that sentiment which is to say they they were kurt was very good about putting like very catchy lyrical melodies together with you know the the music they were creating and i think this is a good example of that that kind of singy sing-songy pre-chorus core you know pre-chorus because if you have even if you need i don't even care like stuff like that sticks in my brain and like bubblegum you know that's where you get the term bubblegum pop from right so yeah, definitely this record is a lot cleaner than the stuff we've heard so far, which is what I was, uh, you know, you you talked about and I was alluding to. So, all right, we're going to move on to the next track, which is uh, called Territorial Pissings, <laughs> which is a track, uh, which is uh, the seventh track on the record. There's a great little thing by um, Chris Novoselic at the front. So here it is, Territorial Pissings. Enjoy. Try to love one another right now. When I was a 
Sounds like that was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like that was a really fun one to record. Yeah, so Territorial Pissings by Nirvana off the Nevermind record. Still feel the same? No, I like that one. That was good. Okay. I don't feel super strongly about it, but uh, it was... It, 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 it sounded like fun. Um, there's just there, there wasn't a lot of song there. It's like they came up with 15 seconds of song and just played that over and over again. So, honestly, that's, that's a lot of Nirvana. When you go and you listen to Bleach and you read the lyrics, because uh, the other day when I was getting ready for the episode, I was like, you know, I've been carrying around, when I was, oh God, when I was in high school, I had a Walkman. And so I dubbed a bunch of records, right? And I had Bleach on one side and then Nevermind on the other because I think that was what was out at the time. I've been listening to Bleach for such a long time that I just don't think about it anymore. But, you know, when I said before about I love Spotify because it has the um, lyric sheets, I was like, you know what? Let me do Younger Me a, a service and read these lyrics. And then I, I started skimming through them and I'm like, it's the same five lines. For two and a half, three minutes. <laughs> like, good for you for scamming the system. You know what I mean? And like, <laughs> but how dare you, sir? I'm not going to finish writing this. No, song. no I'm just going to stop here and do it again. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Second curse. Same, same as the verse. A little bit louder and a little bit worse. You know, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of that in the older stuff. It, it, it peeks through in some areas here and there um not i don't know that it's so much so on um never mind and in utero but when you get to incesticide which is where we're going uh so yeah i decided really only to put two tracks off of never mind i feel like never mind is so oversaturated and i don't think it's a great encapsulation of what this band was will be i don't know yeah you know what okay smells like teen spirit in bloom lithium even hell I thought it was impressive that the new Batman movie with um, Robert Pattinson, they use something in the way, which to your point about, well, the only thing I know about Nirvana is he's angry and droning. That's a very angry and droning song for a moment. I almost put it and then I said, no, that's not the vibe I want to go for for the episode. So again, nothing wrong with Nevermind. It was unfortunately the voice of a generation, which really kind of made, you know, Kurt <laughs> angry because he wasn't that person. And then, you know, it's all downhill from here, right? This album is a like instant overnight success. They go from playing like a hundred people shows to full on arena arenas in Rio and all over the globe. And, you know, a lot of people can't take the sudden fame, especially Kurt, who was a very private person. You know, it's just it 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 just becomes a whole thing, right? which, you know, at uh, at some point, you know, drives people deeper into whatever hole they're slowly, um, like, climbing out of. But at any rate, I'm no psychologist. We're going to jump ahead to the next record, the next uh, full-length record, which is called Incesticide. This is, um, this is actually a compilation album, right? It consists of, let's see, according to Wikipedia, it consists of their 1990 non-album single, sliver b-sides demos outtakes cover versions and radio broadcast recordings and as such is not the official follow-up to the band's breakthrough album nevermind i don't know i, I kind of called bull but whatever take that for what it is it's not an official third album 
I don't know. I've always felt it was. We're going to listen to a track called Dive, which, if I'm not mistaken, was a single. I don't know that it had a video, though. I'm going to have to double check that while we listen to it. Sliver was a single. I I love that song. I think it's great. I don't think it's what I'm going for. So we're just going to dive right in. Thank you. See, I, 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 I chuckled. I know. You got the old snicker out of me. <laughs> anyway. Here's Dive by Nirvana off the 92 compilation Incesticide. Enjoy.
was Dive by Nirvana off the compilation record Incesticide. Now, how did that grab you? Yeah, it was a good time. That that was a very fade into the background, solid, crunchy music. I was <laughs> trying to find the right word for it. It was, it was pretty crunchy. Yeah, I, yeah, I enjoyed it. It didn't 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 smack me around. Didn't didn't tickle my toes. But it was a it was, it was a good good enough time. I didn't know you were into that sort of stuff. I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying. To be honest with you. <laughs> Fantastic. That being said, I'm going to be totally honest with you. I find incesticide to be fairly unlistenable. <laughs> <laughs> and you grabbed two songs off. <laughs> oh, hang on a second. Hang on. Let me let me let me uh, let me drive this bus. The reason I find it kind of unlistenable is because it is, in fact, a collection of parts. It's like stragglers in the the journey that is, you know, Nirvana up to this point, right? It's kind of like Pisces Iscariot from Smashing Pumpkins. Right. It's like, this is definitely Nirvana stuff, and that's it. No, that being said, like, there's a couple songs on here that I'm going to say are songs, right? You get Sliver, you get Dive, (laughs) you get the next one we're going to listen to, right? Thank goodness for that. (laughs) I thought they were hot dogs. Well, I haven't had a hot dog in a while. Yeah, oh, there's, I, why did I say that out loud? You're just yeah, a jerk. You know that? You should go get a hot dog after uh, this. I live in New York. We get them dirty water dogs. Mm-hmm. If there's anything worse for you, I don't know what it is. Anyway, so I find that a lot of the other tracks on this record, right, are, they're in fact that that noise that, like, they talk about when they talk about Nirvana. There's a lot of, like, random screechy howly stuff there's in fact a cover of uh, uh the devo tune um turnaround there's two covers by the vaselines which were a uh, uh, kurt was a huge fan of and they're good they're certainly not nirvana songs so it's it's a very hodgepodge kind of thing and then and then they did a what they call the new wave a new wave cover excuse me a new wave edition of polly off of Nevermind. So. Polly was like a slower song, almost a dirge to some extent. They cranked it up and it's got like, it's like double time what the original was. And it's like, eh, all right, whatever. And it's just a handful of tracks. You just think like eh, Mexican seafood, hairspray queen, arrow Zeppelin, big long. Now, like I could have done without those songs, but whatever you got a record contract to fulfill. I get it. Right. That's why all bands have live albums. Nobody really likes live albums. Let's be honest. Let's stop kidding ourselves here. But I've got a, a five record deal and I've written four records and I could cop out with a live. Got it. Let's do it. This song does, excuse me, this album does have aneurysm, which uh, became another big song for them as well. The only other song I think worth mentioning here is, in fact, a song called Been a Son. I'm. If I understand correctly, this song was written, let's see, it was written in 89, so right around the time of Bleach. I actually think it might have been recorded, uh, let's see, it was recorded in 89 for Blue, where it didn't, uh, it didn't appear on the American release, it was like on a single, and then it was recorded in 91 uh, for Incesticide. So we're going to listen to the 91 version off of Incesticide. The song's called Been a Sun, and it's Nirvana. Enjoy. <laughs> Thank you. 
didn't guess that was been a son by Nirvana off of incesticide. I've got a lot of little tidbits that I want to read, but obviously very much more important is how that affected you. Uh, it was again, it was fun to listen to. It was uh, it was quite short uh, because it was again, it was like they wrote 15 seconds of song and said, this is the this is it. We're just doing this <laughs> uh, copy paste. It, uh, uh, sonically speaking, this reminds me a lot more of what I know Nirvana to sound like. It's that uh, Kurt's voice sounds what I think of when I hear when I when I it sounds like what I hear when somebody mentions Kurt Cobain's voice. Um, mm -hmm. It was repetitive, not too obnoxiously. So it, it was it was fine. It was it was fun. Non-offensive. Didn't didn't. Didn't make me want to claw my eyes out or anything. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I vaguely enjoyed it. <laughs> All right. So not to not to heap too I, hefty praise on it. Yeah. But. <laughs> Please slow down. I can't keep up. <laughs> I don't know how to follow that. Ugh. So I wanted to double check its original recording when this particular version of it was recording recorded, because originally I keep crapping on live. <laughs> like this whole episode has just been me bashing live records for whatever reason. And for the most part, I stand by it. However, there was a single. So back in the day, the internet wasn't a thing, right? We hunted for CDs, like Japanese imports, right? That's what we did for Nirvana mm -hmm. stuff. We needed Japanese imports to get these weird songs that we only heard legend about. There's a song called, you know, D7. There's a song called Moist Vagina. Like, where are these songs? We have to find them. They were on, quote unquote, the B-sides of, of single CDs that came in from Japan. Anyway, this uh, B-side, this particular B-side had been a son, but it was a live version. And for pretty much all of my life, I'd really, I say all of my life, but up until Incesticide, right? I had only heard kind of this live version. And I thought, like, that is great. So when picking it for this episode, I fought myself <laughs> because I said, no one gives a shit about live. Like only deadheads like live. <laughs> and I'm I'm alienating a bunch of people. Anyway, I was going to use the live version, but I said, no, no, no. Let me let me keep looking. I know that there's a studio recording. And of course, it shows up on the record that I can't stand. <laughs> but it's a great recording of it. I think it's it's very clear. So in doing so. In looking for a little bit of information, it basically shows that this record was this song was originally recorded for the it was recorded in '89. Uh, it might have let's see, of the five songs recorded, totally released with both Venus and Spain appearing on the Blue EP. Yeah, but yeah, okay. So at some point, Blue was a single, right? And then it had its B sides, and its B sides were Venus and another song called Stain. At some point, they re-recorded it. Some BBC session is it a BBC session? Let's see. Yeah, uh, yes, for a BBC program, the evening sessions. Um, with more digging, I'm sure I'll find out that that's the recording. I'm just going to leave that there. But what I wanted to talk about is the reception release uh, section here. It reads very interesting. Um, Venice Sun has been cited as one of the earliest examples of Nirvana's more melodic direction following the release of, the release of their 89 debut, Bleach. Um, author Chuck Grisafoli noted Cobain suppressed his pop influences during the band's early years. But after the release of Bleach, he became more outspoken and confident about professing his love of John Lennon and the Beatles. <laughs> Everyone talks about how the Beatles, rev not revolutionized, but really, you want to learn 
songwriting study the Beatles. So I think that's a very good point here. Uh, Fisk, who produced the first version of the song, said that the recording featured, quote, total Lennon harmonies right out of Rubber Soul, end quote. Ezerod wrote that Cobain's vocals were, quote, draped in an un-sub-pop-like harmonies, a reference to Nirvana's then-record label, best known for their heavier grunge sound that defined most of Bleach, uh, with the exception of About a Girl. English musician Tom Arnold, <laughs> Tim Arnold, excuse me, not the comedian, <laughs> <laughs> even, even a jumbo jet looks small landing in the Grand Canyon uh, described the song as part of Nirvana's post-bleach quote political thrust to the top of the charts I can't help but like read that stuff and think yes that's all accurate because what happens next is something of uh, massive interest alright so we're done with Incesticide, thank God. And we're going to move on to one of my all-time favorite records ever written, recorded, produced in utero, 1993's In Utero. In the interview with Grohl and Novoselic uh, with Conan and Steve Albini, Steve Albini, of course, being the recording uh, engineer and, and uh, producer on In Utero, they talk about the vibe in the band going into In Utero. Coming off the massive success of Nevermind, it being the record that they kind of didn't want to make, they weren't happy with it, they found Steve Albini and they wanted to work with him. When they sat down with Steve Albini, they basically said, look, we want to make the record we want to make. And Albini, in probably like the dopest rock move ever, as is his, he's a punk too. He comes from, what do you call it? He comes from that punk world. I think I want to say his, studio was in chicago he played in a handful of bands i'm trying to find his um his credentials while, while i talk about him he says you know i'm not he's formerly of black flag rape man flower pig face and peg boy but you know that's the that's the the guy he is anyway he comes out to them and says look i'm not taking points on the record because who the hell am i right i'm not the artist like, that all belongs to you. He did the record for whatever his fee was, $600. And, you know, people constantly talk to him about, like, why would you do that? Why would you do that? You could have made so much money. He's like, that's not who I am. And I think that's important because that's not who Nirvana is either, right? You look at someone like Kurt Cobain and, you know, he was never, like, that guy. So they kind of find kindred spirits in the in the in Steve Albini and they get to work and the record that they end up making, I think is a record that Nirvana always wanted to make when someone handed them a ton of money, right? Cause it is a production. It's nice and full. It's, it's that old punk flavor that they had done in, you know, Kurt and Chris had in bleach. Um, and I can't think of one personally one bad track on the record so going into it i just give you a little bit of that we're gonna we're gonna start this journey off with the opening track serve the servants the opening lyrics i think speak to the humor sarcasm and kind of like i don't know sardonic nature of kurt cobain which is to say teenage angst has paid off well but now i'm bored and old hmm. that being said Here's a Utero's opening track, Serve the Servants by Nirvana. Enjoy. 
<laughs> that was Serve the Servants by Nirvana off 93's In Utero. And how do you feel about that? Hmm. I'm trying to formulate my thoughts on this one. Can I read some stuff to you while you attempt yeah, to formulate your thoughts? Yeah. I don't, well, no, all right. I, I, I didn't hate it. I appreciated it. It definitely wasn't my jam. Um, and I can mm -hmm. say that uh, a lot of that comes from, I mean, the back half of the song was like, here's a thing I'm going to mumble, and I'm just going to do that over and over and over and over and over again. And that's part of what I find relatively annoying about Nirvana music. However, mm -hmm. given the story that you've told me about this being what they want to do, as opposed to, I guess, what springs to mind when I think of Nirvana, it was easier to appreciate what they were going for. Um, it does sound a bit more honest. It does sound a bit more... Not my... It's, it's not my jam, but it sounded more like I was able to appreciate it for what it is and what it was trying to be, uh, if that makes sense to you. It makes perfect sense to me. So... You know, again, I've listened to these songs billions of times, so I was doing a little reading while we were listening. Just wanted to get a little, see if I could garner a little more background info, and I, I came across these uh, couple of quotes. Nirvana hired Steve Albini to record In Utero, seeking a more complex, abrasive sound that was reminiscent of their work prior to Nevermind. Although frontman and primary songwriter Kurt Cobain claimed that the album was, quote, very impersonal, Many of the songs contain heavy allusions to his personal life and struggles, expressing feelings of angst that were common on the band's previous records. After recording finished, rumors circulated that David Geffen, DGC, David Geffen, whatever, might not release the album due to Albini's abrasive and uncommercial sound. The album was mastered by Bob Ludwig to achieve a more desirable sound for both Nirvana and their label. The band later hired Scott Litt, to remix the singles, All Apologies, Heart Shaped Box, and Penny Royalty to Albini's dismay. So this is a perfect example of people meddling where they shouldn't, right? Mm. You, I get it. You're a commodity to a, to a company, but people forget, and especially at this time, nobody gave a shit. People forget that at the end of the day, these are people making art, and artists are very sensitive. And artists are very what's the word territorial about their work. So Steve Albini, you know, he was brought on for a specific reason and I don't blame. He's very outspoken too. He's a very like in your face. He'll tell you exactly how he feels. I've seen a ton of interviews with him when I was younger. I hated him. I thought he was just an asshole. Now as an adult, I'm like, Oh, I get it. I totally get it. <laughs> and then Nirvana expressed dissatisfaction with the sound of the album. Never mind citing its production as too polished. Early in 92, frontman Cobain told Rolling Stone that Nirvana's next album would showcase both, quote, both of the extremes, end quote, of their sound, saying, quote, it would be more raw with some songs and more candy pop on some of the others. It won't be one-dimensional. The producer of Nevermind, Butch Vig, said later that Cobain had needed to work with a different producer to, quote, reclaim his punk ethics or cred, end quote. I don't know if you ask me, it sounds a little sour, but you know, whatever. Anyway, that's what is going on here and behind the scenes. So I don't know if that helps as you listen to it, but I think you're kind of picking up what's being put down here. 
you know, you had mentioned that you can feel it in a way, mm -hmm. you know, so. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I want to see you make a pun out of this song. <laughs> this is by far and wide one of my favorite song titles of all time. This is uh, Francis Farmer will have her revenge on Seattle. Uh, there's a great little story that comes with this. I'll regale you with it afterwards. Here it is. Francis Farmer will have a revenge on Seattle by Nirvana off of In Utero. Enjoy. Yes, I'm relieving now that you're leaving.
was Frances Farmer. We'll have her revenge on Seattle by Nirvana off the 93 in utero release. Christopher? I'm curious if she ever did get her revenge. I did. What uh, happened? <laughs> you know, what's the rest of the story? <laughs> okay. So song, <laughs> we'll talk a little bit about the, about the um, reference, right? Frances Farmer was a native of Seattle. She was an actress, right? Who struggled with mental health. And according to, I'm re- reading a little bit of Wikipedia here, uh, faced quote, involuntary commitment several times in her life, which she claimed led to suffer her suffering from systemic abuse. Uh, what's, and then there's this other little bit here that I think is kind of funny. Nirvana biographer Michael Azarod referred to the far, to farmer as, quote, the patron martyr of Cobain and his wife, Courtney Love, who identified with her in part because they saw parallels between her mistreatment by the media and their own struggles with the press. Then, of course, if you really want, there's a little biography on Francis Farmer here. Let's see. Following early accusations of atheism and communism, <laughs> reports against surface of allegedly erratic behavior, Farmer was arrested and committed to a psychiatric institution several times before being diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. This led to a stay of several years at in Lakewood, the request of her mother and her and other family members. Farmer later recounted that she what she called the unbearable terror of being in the hospital, claiming she was raped by orderlies, gnawed on by rats, and poisoned by tainted food. I was chained in padded cells, stripped into straight, strapped into straitjackets, and half drowned in ice baths. The accuracy of the book, which was published posthumously and partially ghostwritten by a friend, is disputed, but farmers confirmed to have suffered from poor conditions at the hospitals, undergoing electroconvulsive shock therapy, as was standard at the institution at the time. Oh, she had a conservatorship. Let's see. They attempted to come back as an actor, diagnosed with esophageal cancer, excessive smoking, died in the 70s. I don't know that she ever got her revenge, Chris. I'm sorry. Hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess the short version is I, I, again, not my jam, but I appreciated it. Um, I can I can hear. It's weird because like I can hear the band that we started with in here uh, more than I could in the previous one. In the in the previous album, but it's like, I don't know. It's it it just kind of seems to have lost a little bit of its luster for my tastes personally. But I am definitely appreciating what I'm hearing. Cool. Okay. Like I said, I'm 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 just a purveyor of perhaps a different side of a band that has been commercially known to be one way. <laughs> you have you have definitely uh, affected my overall opinion of this band in a positive manner. Well, you will get to tell me that all about that after this final track, which is, in fact, our final track of the episode that Chris and I are going to be listening to. This has become one of my favorite songs kind of of all time from this band. Even the name is such a great, like, thumb in the eye to the establishment. The song I'm talking about title is Radio Friendly Unit Shifter. Again, the wry sarcasm and again the spitting in the eye in the face of establishment radio friendly unit shifter when seeing when seeing the name on its own i didn't get it but now right. i understand but right now I get and, it. And that's one of my favorite things about doing this particular episode is you know you saw the track list going into it right and you said i don't know any of these songs 
you see some of the names and you think to yourself, probably like Francis Farmer will have a revenge on Seattle. That's ridiculous. And then you hear the backstory. Radio friendly unit shifter. Oh, sneaky, sneaky. So big fan of that. I, I love subversion. Anyway, we're going to get it on. We're going to listen to our final track. This is called Radio Friendly Unit Shifter. It is off of In Utero and it is by Nirvana. Enjoy.
That was radio-friendly unit shifter by Nirvana off 1993's In Utero. And as a final track, how did that grab you? It was unsurprisingly a complete misnomer. <laughs> I'm a big fan of it. I love before, that sort of stuff. Before starting it, I was thinking to myself, this is either going to be like the tamest, poppiest Nirvana song ever, or just complete <laughs> madness. And I'm really happy it wound up being the latter. I, again, not not specifically my jam, but this I had a really good time listening to this one as just a... I don't know. It's, it was weird. It was noisy. Um, it was just kind of a kind of a fun trip of insanity. I I, I rather I rather enjoyed it. It's a good time. Fantastic. I'm glad to hear. Um, before we get into our final thoughts, I want to make mention that we opened up the episode with a song called Tourette's. Um, it is also off of the uh, In Utero record. It comes actually after Radio Friendly Unit Shifter, which is promptly followed by a song called All Apologies, which is <laughs> absolutely the complete polar opposite of both songs. That being said, that's that's the episode. Uh, I would love to hear your final thoughts on everything. Well, I don't think Nirvana's ever going to be for me, but I have to say that um, that first album, what was it called, Bleach? Yes. I I really enjoyed all three of those songs. Uh that's that's an album that I'm going to go back and listen to. Oh, fantastic. I can I I I am sorry to say that in in utero didn't grab me the same way that it does grab you, uh but okay. I was able to appreciate it a bit more than uh the stuff that I have heard by Nirvana previously. Uh I can't say any of this really sounded all that familiar to me. Like even trying to think back to like my sister blasting the stuff out of her room. None mm-hmm. of it really sounded like anything I had heard before. Mm-hmm. It was a very interesting episode. This was a, this is a really interesting trip um, to try and learn what it is that uh, I've been missing out of Nirvana for all these years. And I think you did a pretty darn good job of uh, showing me a different side of this band. This was a, this was a fun experience. I'm really happy that you have kind of a, I don't want to say a different takeaway, but, as you put it, you, you're seeing the, a different side of a band that was such a global phenomenon, you know, and in my opinion, blown out of proportion to some extent. That Nevermind record was literally everywhere. You could not escape it, you know, for better or for worse. You'll get people that uh, talk about, quote unquote, grunge and the Seattle sound. And, you know, when I went looking to make a write-up for the show, I thought, let me find some positive stuff about Nirvana that people have written over the years, and then let me find some negative stuff that people... <laughs> and I will tell you, there's no shortage of both, but in reading both sides of that that coin, I said, no, it's that's not what I want to do with this episode. Um, it's not what Chris and I set out to do with this program. As I said on the onset, I wasn't trying to... I'm not trying to make anyone Nirvana fans, you know, our intention was always with the show to showcase the stuff that we enjoy to each other. You know, in the end, if, if, if you're, you're swayed, Oh, I, I hated these guys. Now I've seen a different side. I love them. Now I'm a fan. Ah, that's fantastic. You know what I mean? But I think ultimately what it boils down to is just being open and stepping outside of your comfort zone. So every episode, I thank you very much for that, Chris, because as we said in our first episodes, Music is so personal to each other that it can, it can actually physically hurt when someone's like, "This is shit." 
please turn it off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a that's a that's a bad time right there, and I would never do that. No, this it, is just it was an it was an interesting ride. I don't really know how I don't really know how else to say it. Just a uh, it, it was it was an interesting experience. Um, you know, like you you want you know the, the the kind of music that I gravitate towards. You know, when everyone was listening right. to Nirvana, I was listening to like Soul Asylum and Collective Soul. Like I just like happier music makes more sense to me. I, I feel like I understand. Um, I understand why so many people gravitated towards this. You know, I've always yeah. been so much more of an, especially in high school, I was an extraordinarily optimistic person. So naturally, mm. naturally this music was, you know, I didn't have anything yes. to rebel against. My parents let me do. <laughs> my parents were like super supportive of just about anything I wanted oh, to do. Awesome. Like, you know, I, I I had a decent set of friends. Like I got bullied a little while until I found my friends, and then I had a a good group to hang out with. And you know, everybody has problems, but like yeah. uh, on the whole, I didn't really look at myself as like somebody who was dealing with a lot of heavy stuff. Like everybody, mm-hmm. most people had it worse off than I did, and I was very cognizant of that. So, um, music that was very anti-establishment or like rebellious never held the same um it just didn't hold the same luster for me because i didn't i didn't identify it i didn't identify with it and i i I don't know i guess just uh never i never really thought of it that way before thinking about it now but um i guess that's uh that's just kind of the the way things were and i'm not trying to say like hey look how great i am i had a great life like no it's the complete opposite of what i'm saying it's like i there are certain things that didn't resonate with me because I was extraordinarily fortunate in a lot of ways. And, mm-hmm. um, so I, I, I guess it makes sense to me as an adult going back and listening to this stuff. Like, okay, I, I, I understand where I understand why the people that I know who connected with this connected with it the way that they did a, a bit better. And it's, uh, it's, it's a real bummer that, uh, he didn't get to, stick around longer because it would have been interesting to see what he would have done with the rest of his life. I, I can also say that I'm too. Okay. I, 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 I've never been even a, a vaguely a fan of Courtney love. So no, uh, no, no, <laughs> that's a whole other that's, ball of wax. That's I'm a whole, not. that's a podcast for another podcast as they say. Nah. But, um, nah. This, this, uh, <laughs> this was an illuminating experience. So thank you. Thank you for sharing. Fantastic. I think for me, ultimately, um, I went to Catholic school for grammar and for high school. So I had 12 years of um, the establishment. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And very much in like seventh or eighth grade, I, I, it's when I had my quote unquote awakening, which is to say, I don't believe any of this. And so I think for me, that's when I started to question a lot of things. So, you know, I was into a lot of like early in my in my youth i was into a lot of like aggressive music a lot of aggressive punk bands a lot of uh bands that would question you know there's there's metallica tracks that question and that and and that was always me is always questioning which is funny because my wife says i don't question anything anymore so i don't know what happened but i digress yeah if i was i was angsty i was a fucking edgelord you know what i mean i was 16 and edgy 14 and edgy i thought i knew you know so that's where the stuff resonates with me is just, but for me, you know, looking back on it is it was all confusion. You're fucking, your hormones are out of whack. You don't know what the hell's going on with your body. All of a sudden girls are 
interesting and you're awkward. It's just it for me, it was all there in some way, shape or form, whether it was through the music or whatever. Um, I'm, I'm ever grateful that this stuff was made. I agree with you to a great extent. It's a shame, you know, he took his own life. So in such a way, because I, I've always wondered what like maybe the next record could have been or something, which brings me to kind of the wind down of the episode. You know, as always, thank you for listening. Chris, thank you for being so open. And and that's it. Uh, join us next time for another episode of Turning Tracks where it will be Chris's turn. I'm ever so curious what you're going to do to follow Nirvana. Chris, what are you going to do to follow Nirvana? Absolutely nothing. We're going to sit in silence for a solid hour. No, I'm just kidding. Well, our, show, our shows are usually an hour and 45, so I could sit in silence for an hour and 45. <laughs> That's our that's our April Fools episode. There you go. <laughs> All right, seriously Chris, what do you got for me? All right, so uh this is a band that's I've been kind of wanting to touch on for a little bit here. I've had the the track list actually together for a while now and just been like, <laughs> no, nah, I don't know if this is the time, but I feel like this is the time I would like to dedicate our next episode to the band Hockey. I'm sorry, who? Hockey. Like the sport. But it's the only hockey I know. <laughs> Yes, there's a band called Hockey. So, all right. I'm not surprised. That clears like, up your uh, familiarity with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. A friend of mine introduced me to this band, like, uh, must have been like a decade ago now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really like some of their music. And so it's, it's going to be an interesting episode. <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> I'm going to ask one question because I want, obviously, I want all the information when we get to said episode. But you just said, I like some of their music. Mm-hmm. Does that mean in their collection there is music that you don't like? Yes. I am so glad we're going to do this episode because I swear to you, I've been on the fence about a couple bands. And I'm like, ah, I wouldn't call myself like a fan. I just like maybe one album. And I'm like, I can't do just one album. That doesn't make any sense. Or like there's a band that's got like six albums and I like two tracks after every album. I'm so glad we're going to do this, but I'm even more excited because I've never heard of this <laughs> band. Like, ever. Yeah, cool. Um, I like them. I like... Again, it's, it's, that's what this is. I really like one album of theirs. It's fucking phenomenal. Okay. And then they have other music, too. So... <laughs> <laughs> and then they did some other stuff. Um, so, uh, but yeah, that one it, album... Good times. Uh, it, I think it's I've I've put a lot of thought into making this this track list. Uh, so yeah, I think it's going to be a fun 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 episode. Yeah, yeah. The band Hockey. Don't don't look into them too much before the show. Cause I won't. I'm, uh, I promise you, I won't. I'm excited. I don't do any research for the show. Are you kidding me? <laughs> this show or our other show? I don't do any research. I show up. <laughs> I'm making track track lists three minutes before we're, we're recording. <laughs> You're sweating, looking for music, and I'm like, my job's done. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah, now you have to edit buddy. so mwahaha. I know I know why do you have to be such a pioneer I'm so glad you're doing something like this because it gives me carte blanche to do whatever the hell I want yeah the, <laughs> the floodgates are open man you don't have to love love the band you just have to share the music you love fantastic well that's our show we here at Turning Tracks are incredibly grateful to everyone who listens and we love communicating with you when we can, and we have a couple of ways that you can do that. 
There's the Geek Aid Discord channel in which we have a Turning Tracks chat, where we hope to discuss all manner of stuff relating to music and whatever our next episodes are going to be. And of course, you can always still send us a ma uh, an email at mail at geekade.com, G-E-E-K-A-D-E.com. And while you're at it, check out all our social media channels, which you should totally follow, like, and subscribe if you haven't done already. And I ask you every single time, if you haven't done already, why? Turning Tracks and other Geek Aid podcasts are made possible thanks to the Geek Aid Patreon page. There, patrons can get access to a monthly podcast topic and recording schedule, get early access to most of Geek Aid shows, including this one, and more. If you've enjoyed our podcast over the years, Follow the link in the description and give it a look. We really appreciate it. Finally, as always, be sure to check out all the other great content we have over at our site at geekade.com. One more time, that's G-E-E-K-A-D-E.com. As is tradition with every episode that I am hosting, I like to give a dedication with our final song as we send you off into the ether, into the wonderfulness that is life. I don't know that I necessarily have a dedication. Maybe this dedication is a retcon dedication to the younger versions of us who were there, who were so invested in Nirvana and Kurt Cobain as this unintentional uh, thrust upon voice of a generation, you know, the band that changed the landscape of music, that really pissed off all the hair metal people, that ended the careers of poison and white snake you know um to everyone who was there who felt so strongly the way you do about an artist that you feel you know them you know and and were affected by kurt's untimely uh suicide and passing there was a song recorded written and recorded it was originally written by dave grohl and it was recorded during nirvana recording sessions the song's called marigold and in time, it will eventually appear on a Foo Fighters record. I believe it's called Flesh and Bone. In a very different manner. Um, I know Marigold as the B-side to, I want to say, aneurysm. The minute I heard the song, I instantaneously fell in love with it. Little did I know, many of us, little did we know, that it was going to be, for me, a sign of things to come. It was a light at the end of a tunnel that maybe a lot of people fell into when Kurt uh, passed on. If you ask me, it's, it's that thing where someone goes, you know what? Everything's going to be all right. The song is written by Dave Grohl. It's sung by Dave Grohl. It's a beautiful track. It's Marigold. I'm Matt. That's Chris. This is Turning Tracks. Everyone have a wonderful one. Take it easy.
shine